Meet 2024's most anticipated robot vacuum, Eufy X10 Pro Omni. With powerful 8,000 PA suction and MopMaster's dual mop pads, it keeps your floor sparkling clean. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards, and Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now, imagine them getting even softer over time. I'm here to tell you about Bolin Brand Sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Brand Sheets get softer with every wash. They're made from the rarest organic cotton and designed to get softer over time. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order with code BUTTERY. So head to bollnbranch.com today. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 21 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is part one of a two-part case. The second instalment will be available next week. This episode contains distressing themes, explicit language and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. A dead body was found in Harrow, Greater London at the end of May 1993. The officers at the scene quickly came to the conclusion that it was death by misadventure. The man, 37-year-old Christopher Dunn, was a librarian who worked at Hulsden Library in Brent, seven miles from his home on Byron Way in Wealdstone. He was discovered in bed. The death was later ruled undetermined, but detectives thought it looked more like a tragic accident. Forensic analysis was kept to a bare minimum, and with little scrutiny, the police seemed to believe this was how the events unfolded. After all, the officers pondered. Christopher was dressed in a studded leather harness and a belt. It was assumed that Christopher died during an act of sadomasochistic bondage. However, the circumstances of his death and the initial determination of how he died made little sense. He couldn't have restrained himself. Also, the peculiar burn marks to his testicles perhaps might have raised suspicion, 
along with the fact money was withdrawn from his bank account after his death. But as Christopher Dunn was gay, there seemed to be one more reason that persuaded the investigating officers of the theory that he lost his life while participating in a sex act gone wrong. Reports of his death barely graced the newspaper pages across Britain. While it no doubt left his friends and family bereft, at the time news of the discovery was not known to the broader public. His passing was not initially treated as suspicious. It was not until a call was made to the police, questioning why Christopher Dunn's death had not been mentioned in the press along with a string of murders. Investigators would quickly learn they were speaking to a serial killer. Almost three months earlier, at the start of March 1993, the Metropolitan Police were contacted by an employee of the Samaritans, a charity that offers callers non-judgmental emotional support if they need someone to talk to. The anonymous caller said they had killed someone. They provided the name of the victim and the location where he lived. However, the person on the other end of the line did not seem the slightest bit concerned about the life they had supposedly taken. They were more worried about some animals that had been left locked inside the property. The dogs belonged to the homeowner. It appeared the killer did not want to see the animals inadvertently starve if no one raised the alarm. Unsure if his admission was being taken seriously, It appeared the same person also contacted the Sun newspaper a short while later, speaking to a cool handler in their newsroom. Again recounting how two dogs were trapped in a flat, the mystery caller claimed he had killed someone. The Sun employee also contacted the police, informing them of the news. Coincidentally, earlier that day, officers from the Metropolitan Police Force had been dispatched to a flat on Vicarage Crescent in Battersea, southwest London, arriving on March 10th. The home belonged to Peter Walker. The discovery had initially been made by the property's caretaker, who hoped to be greeted that day by the successful Merseyside-born West End choreographer and theatre director in his mid-forties. But when they knocked, they received no response. The sound of someone at the door alerted several dogs in the home who were barking loudly, although no one was coming to calm them down, not least their owner. After being met with nothing but silence, The caretaker entered the property. They found the owner's two dogs shut in a room who were in need of a good meal. Calling out for Peter Walker, the caretaker began to explore the flat and went into the bedroom. There, under a duvet and several bedsheets, he saw a pair of feet still dressed in socks poking out from the bottom of the covers. 
Except for the socks, Peter Walker was naked. His body was lifeless. His limbs were outstretched. It appeared as though while in a vulnerable position, unable to defend himself, he had been suffocated. He had rope burns to his wrists and ankles. The body had been attacked with the pubic hair burned off and condom shoved in the victim's mouth and nose. The contraceptives were also scattered throughout the bedroom. Two teddy bears had been crudely posed next to the body. The person who had claimed he was responsible had calmly told the operator in the son's newsroom that he had murdered someone. The voice on the other end of the line said, I am calling you because I am worried about his dogs. I want them to be let out. It would be cruel for them to be stuck there. They need food and water. I tied him up and killed him and cleaned up the flat afterwards. I did it. It was my New Year's resolution to kill a human being. Is that of any interest to you? He was homosexual and into kinky sex. The caller then hung up. As the hunt began to find Peter Walker's killer, officers started to look into his background. Peter Walker was HIV positive, a fact that would become relevant to the case. There was no indication that he was in a relationship with anyone. Checks were run on his bank account as his cash card was not at the property. The police noticed that £150 had been withdrawn from his account several hours after he was murdered. While there was evidence he had been restrained, there appeared to be no rope or handcuffs left at the scene. Officers tried to pinpoint where he had been the night he died. They would later discover that on the evening of March 8th, he had visited a pub in Earl's Court almost two miles north over the River Thames. On Old Brompton Road, the Coal Hearn was then a popular place to go if you were gay, liked wearing leather and had an interest in the S&M scene. The windows were darkened to hinder any prying eyes and it had grown quite the reputation, even abroad, as countless renowned celebrities and musicians paid the venue a visit. As revellers parted the night away, like any other pub or nightclub, connections were made and some people who had only just met would go home with one another. While police made inquiries at the venue, due to the historic tensions during that period, few people spoke up. Since the 1950s, the Colhern had welcomed the gay community, although it had not always been a leather bar. Its clientele seemed to be the focus of the police force's ire. They singled out the crowds of gay men as they left, often making unwarranted arrests and harassing the men on the street. To compound matters around the time that Peter Walker's body was discovered, a law had been passed which made sadomasochism between consenting adults illegal. No one wanted to come forward in case they faced prosecution. 
a televised appeal by Detective Inspector Martin Finnegan generated no leads. What's more, with the lack of forensic evidence, the search for the killer was a near-insurmountable task. The inquiry bore no fruit. Ten weeks later, at the end of May, the police's investigation into the death of Peter Walker had all but wound down. It was considered to be an isolated killing. But around this time, nine miles north in Brent, northwest London, 37-year-old Christopher Dunn had not turned up for work at the library where he was employed. Staff hadn't received any calls that he was sick. Concerned as Christopher lived alone, a friend went to check on him. They were met with a horrendous scene. Officers were called to the terrace property on Byron Way in Wildstone, sometime around 5.30pm on Sunday, May 30th. Christopher Dunn was face down. There were signs his ankles and wrists had been bound with handcuffs. He was naked apart from a leather harness. Like Peter Walker, his death was due to suffocation. Dunn's body showed signs of torture. His testicles were severely burned. However, as he was someone that practiced S&M, the detectives did not see this as a form of assault. They believed that Christopher Dunn either injured himself or it was persons unknown. While the exact circumstances could not be determined, the officers were certain it was death by misadventure. Like Peter Walker, Christopher Dunn was gay. His friends believed he wasn't always able to be himself, with Christopher often behaving and dressing more conservatively during the day but after work he could finally relax. He enjoyed going out and socialising. One of his regular haunts was the Cold Hearn, the same place where Peter Walker had last been seen. However, the police did not initially connect the dots, as the killings were in separate areas served by different detectives. Then Scotland Yard operated under a segmented structure, delaying the eventual revelation that money had been taken from Christopher Dunn's account after he had died. The person responsible knew the pin for Christopher's bank card, which coupled with the injuries later confirmed that he had been tortured for this information. Unlike Peter Walker, Christopher Dunn's death was all but considered an accident and was barely mentioned in the press. Again, the killer had got away with murder. There was ten weeks between the first and second murder. The third occurred just over a week after the second. Police were again called to do a welfare check at a flat which belonged to businessman Perry Bradley III. The American in his mid-thirties was from Texas and was the son of a congressman. 
He was working in England as a sales director for a slough adhesives company, J.B. Weld. Harry Bradley's flat was in the affluent area of Kensington, which was walking distance from the Coal Hearn. Like the other victims, Perry Bradley's body was found in a state of undress. There were signs of abuse, what appeared to be whip marks, and a noose had been left around the victim's neck. A doll was also positioned around the body in a suggestive manner. However, yet again the same problems arose. As there were separate detectives working on each case, Similarities were not immediately drawn between the crimes. Also, the police did not initially come to learn that Perry Bradley was gay, so this was another reason why no direct connection between the crimes was made. Even Perry's acquaintances were unaware of his sexuality. A friend and co-worker Sarah Sheehan later spoke with a reporter and said, I can only imagine that Perry's friendliness was mistaken and taken advantage of. I would be very surprised if he was gay. He has certainly been out with women. The familiar pattern emerged after the killing. Again, with the private details of the victim's bank account, the killer not only withdrew several hundred pounds, but also stole money from the third victim's wallet. It seemed the killer was determined to continue until he was caught. On June 9th, the body of a fourth victim was found. Andrew Collier was 33 years old and worked as a nurse in a home for the elderly. He had last been seen after he returned to his flat in the company of another man. They had been seen together when entering the sheltered housing block where Andrew lived. After a night out at the Coal Hearn on June 7th, Andrew agreed to go back to his flat on Dalston Lane in Stoke Newington with someone he had never met before. Andrew had recently come out of the hospital. He was frail. He was HIV positive and was in an incredibly vulnerable state. But this did not stop the killer, who showed no mercy. Andrew would be dead by morning, along with his pet cat, Millie. The killer again felt the need to humiliate the victim. Please note the next few paragraphs describe the circumstances in which the animal and their owner were found. Skip ahead 30 seconds if you would prefer not to hear the details. Andrew was lying on his back. Parts of his body were severely bruised and burned. Condoms had been shoved into his mouth and nose. His penis was forced into his dead cat's mouth after it had been strangled. The condom was pulled over its tail. Both Andrew's wrists and ankles had deep ligature marks. Flat had been turned over with clothing, paperwork and some furniture piled up in the middle of the room. It was clear the killer had ransacked the property. 
there was no blood or semen found. However, after the scene was dusted for prints, the police had their first breakthrough. A single fingerprint which did not belong to Andrew Collier was discovered on the bar from a window grill that faced the street outside. This was the only piece of evidence that had been left behind that could identify the killer. Unfortunately, in 1993, fingerprints could not be compared en masse as complete records had not been fully digitised. Although detectives were unable to identify the killer, due to the similarities between the murders of Peter Walker and Andrew Collier, the first and fourth victims, a link was made between those two cases. As condoms had been used by the murderer when displaying the bodies, in what was described as almost ritualistic. The Metropolitan Police searched throughout their files for any unsolved murders of gay men that featured similar characteristics. They found a link to the death of Perry Bradley, but no one believed him to be gay, so there was at first some confusion as to how he had ended up dead at the hands of the killer. Headquarters were set up in Kensington under the watchful eye of Detective Chief Superintendent Ken John. He was appointed as the senior investigating officer. He understood the complexities of a major manhunt. The murderer came to learn of the incident room that was set up to track him down. On June 12th, he spoke with a CID officer and said that he was the killer. To prove he committed the murders, the caller said that before he took the life of the last victim, he turned all of the photos on the mantelpiece to face the wall. He also provided the layout of the victim's flat. The caller provided information about the killings, dryly voicing the details in a very matter-of-fact way. The killer made several phone calls that same day. Although he remained anonymous, he said that he had read a book titled The Crime Classification Manual, the standard system for investigating and classifying violent crime. Written by former FBI agents John E. Douglas and Robert Resler, the book examines serial killers and explains criminal behaviour and detection. Speaking about how he wanted to be a serial killer, the man told the operator, I know what it takes to become one. You have to kill one over four to qualify, don't you? I plan to kill five. The man went on to say, It started as an exercise. I wanted to see if it could be done. To see if I could really get away with it. In describing the death of Perry Bradley, the man said, I did the American. You've got some good leads on my identity from clues at the scene. Up until this point, the inquiry team had not connected the death of Christopher Dunn to the killer. He was found naked and suffocated, but it was assumed Dunn's death was an accident. 
but it was in fact the killer who told them of the connection. When it was understood that a killer was targeting gay men, the decision was made by the police to go public with the information. As the news broke, a wave of fear was slowly building. The caller had said that he would find a new victim every week. Fully aware they might be next, some men decided not to venture out, and if they did, they would not go alone. Speculation was rife, with national and local media asking if perhaps the killer was seeking retribution after contracting HIV. DCS John, who was leading the inquiry, made an appeal, saying, If there is any message that I send out to the gay community, it is if they are socialising in the city, then they must be careful who they speak to and who they deal with. DCS John advised that if propositioned on a night out, caution should be taken, and a third party should always be told if anyone decides to go home with a stranger. Please don't just slip out of a bar and disappear, the SIO said. The Gay London Policing Group, or Gallup, acknowledged that they had received numerous calls about the killings from friends and acquaintances of the men who had been murdered. Gay men were advised to contact Gallup if they felt uncomfortable speaking with the police force directly. The police were trying to understand if the killer had some connection to each of the victims as he had been allowed in their home. However, it was slowly becoming clear that they had met him casually. Experts were consulted, so a psychological profile of the murderer could be made. While the public were made aware, the serial killer had already struck again. He had asked one of the call operators in a police station, Have you found the body in south-east London yet? And the fire. The fifth victim had been at the Colherne on June 12th, but he left on his own. In his early 40s, Emmanuel Spiteri had arrived in England from Malta over two decades earlier. At the time of his death, he had been working as a catering assistant at Imperial College London. Emmanuel left the Colherne on foot and walked to Earl's Court tube station. Dressed in black leather, he attracted the attention of a man he did not know, and the two began to chat. One thing led to another and the pair were heading to Emmanuel's flat on Hither Green Lane in Lewisham, south-east London, via Charing Cross. They took a train to Hither Green and the rest of the journey was made on foot. This was the last time Emmanuel was seen alive. Emmanuel Spiteri's landlady made the discovery on June 15th. She noticed that the windows to the property were blackened by what looked like smoke. Emmanuel was found naked, bound and strangled to death. 
In this fifth crime, the killer had made attempts to cover his tracks by starting a fire. Although items of furniture had been piled up by the killer in an attempt to fuel the blaze, after the murderer had fled, the fire did not take hold and slowly went out. The killer had been regularly in touch with the police, telling one officer, I'm not giving myself up, but the clues are there. Follow them and you will catch me. It was clear he was reading the press written about him when the Sun newspaper had described him as an animal lover in response to the alarm being raised due to concern about the two dogs in Peter Walker's property. The killer revealed that he had strangled Andrew Collier's cat as he wanted to make it clear he had no love for animals. However, after the death of Emmanuel Spateri and the media frenzy that followed, it appeared as though the murderer cut off contact and he would not call again. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Meet 2024's most anticipated robot vacuum, Eufy X10 Pro Omni. With powerful 8,000 PA suction and MopMaster's dual mop pads, it keeps your floor sparkling clean. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards, and Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now, imagine them getting even softer over time. I'm here to tell you about Bowl & Branch Sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl & Branch Sheets get softer with every wash. They're made from the rarest organic cotton and designed to get softer over time. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order with code BUTTERY. So head to bollandbranch.com today. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
a number of journalists began to write about the crimes, interested in understanding how the gay community perceived a man who was targeting gay men. Everybody's been very careful. That's really all I've noticed. You see somebody walking in the pub one day, not the next, it's a bit shock more than anything else. It takes a bit of time to get used to it. But so many people in such a short space of time is sad. I think I've been frightened at all because I think any man, any gay man living in this area with a bit of sense and a bit of knowledge, there's been enough publicity about it and there's been enough in the gay press. So um, I think, you know, um, if they were going off with a stranger to tell their friends, you know, listen to what that's being said. Anybody with a common sense anyway, you know. Just, you know Ian Katz writing for The Guardian interviewed several men who seemed less concerned than expected, given the stream of abuse they had already suffered at the hands of homophobes. One interviewee said, You've always got the chance of getting your head kicked in. When you're gay, you've just got to accept that things like that happen. Another man spoke about the killer and his methods. You would have thought it through. He's not going to say, you come back to my place and I'll tie you up, whip you and kill you. I've got a regular partner, but I can well understand how this kind of thing happens. You meet someone, you go back to their place, and you could be next on the list. As Emmanuel Spiteri's identity was revealed to the public, the police warned the press to be careful when reporting on the crimes and avoid any speculation as to the killer's motives, as this might prompt him to take another life. Speaking directly to the man that had called the police, DCS John said, Enough is enough. Enough pain, enough anxiety, enough tragedy. Give yourself up on whatever terms, whatever you dictate, whatever time, to me or to my colleagues. Somebody out in the community will know this man. My appeal to that person or those persons is, who is this man and where is this man? It was hoped a breakthrough in the investigation would come if a victim who had survived came forward and offered a description of the man that attacked them. Otherwise, the detective said, he would keep on killing until he was apprehended. Former detective Peter Jay, who was heavily involved in the investigation of Dennis Nilsson, someone who had confessed to murdering 15 men between 1978 and 1983, was interviewed by journalist John Toomey. The chances are he has tried to kill and failed, Peter Jay said. It is unlikely he has succeeded every time, because it is simply not that easy to kill a man. There is probably at least one person sitting at home at this moment, absolutely terrified of a return visit. He should come forward and contact police immediately, and will be surprised by the sympathetic response he will receive. Hoping to find out more information, Officers from Scotland Yard attended the Gay Pride March in London, which saw more than 60,000 supporters seeking to promote gay and lesbian rights as they walked from Embankment to Hyde Park. 
Organisers were keen the event was a celebration, not a, quote, murder mystery weekend. But detectives were on hand if any revellers had information. Underlying today's festivities, the largest annual event of its kind in Europe, there is a deep feeling of unease amongst the gay community about the serial killer who's terrorising London's homosexual community. Police and community workers were handing out leaflets, appealing for help in the hunt for the killer, who they believe is responsible for five murders between March and June the 15th this year. Really, we're hoping for witnesses. We're hoping that uh, there might be people who, who knew the victims uh, or who might have been aware of the movements or who might have some information uh, about who they were with. Any information, really, which would help in the investigation of these events. The unknown question today, was the killer among the festival crowds? Dozens of plain-clothes detectives were. Police are working around the clock in an effort to catch him. The gay rights group Outrage were in attendance, providing whistles which could be used to attract attention if any members of the crowd were attacked. Around 10,000 leaflets were distributed by stewards and officers that pictured the five faces of the victims. It was soon revealed to the media that all the men who had been murdered were subjected to brutal assaults, far beyond anything they would consent to leaving them almost beaten to death before they were strangled. Describing the killer, DCS John said, This man is resourceful, he is determined, and he has set his own agenda. It had been reported that the killings were linked to sadomasochism. However, with the investigation unravelling at a fevered pace, it was speculated by the press that some of the victims may have been forcibly restrained. So far, the police had received no witness sightings, so had no idea what the suspect looked like. While he had been in contact over the phone numerous times, only one recording of his voice existed. The call was captured by a nimble-fingered officer who grabbed a tape recorder near his desk. The caller spoke for several minutes, but the recording was such poor quality it wouldn't be of any use. It appeared as the killer had left behind no forensic material at the scene, no blood or semen. A DNA profile could not be obtained. An expert on serial killers, forensic psychologist Michael Berry, was interviewed by a reporter for the Sunday Independent in Dublin and spoke about the motivations of the person responsible for the string of killings. Quote, This is well-organised serial killing, and he takes great pleasure in it. I think it is unlikely that this man is HIV positive and is taking revenge on homosexuals. That is not the underlying motive. This guy has been fantasising about violence for a long time and has at last started. Once you start, you just keep going. You will not think he is going to be caught. The only way he will stop is if he is arrested, or if he stops of his own accord to tease the police, or if he moves elsewhere to start again. 
Barry also wrote for the Daily Express, offering a more succinct profile. The strangler is likely to be a white man of similar age to his victims. He looks like Mr. Average, the last person his neighbours would suspect of being a serial killer. He lives on his own without any permanent relationships with either men or women and enjoys one-man hobbies. The press interviewed friends and lovers of the men who had lost their lives to a so far unnamed serial killer. There were rumours of a man in his late 20s who was picking up men and describing to them how he had an interest in strangulation. He had long blonde hair, and after voicing his desire to sleep with someone that was unconscious, on several of these encounters the men quickly left and informed the police. More unfounded rumours suggested that the killer's targets, men in their mid-30s to mid-40s, were picked because of their age, being older than the suspected killer. The same description of a blonde-haired man in his late 20s was provided by a victim who wished to remain nameless. He recounted how he went back to a flat in May of that year. Once inside and vulnerable due to the effects of the alcohol he had consumed that night, He was assaulted and almost strangled to death when the assailant used a belt to try and restrain his victim. The man luckily escaped. Some reporters even suggested that the killer was physically attractive, and this was how he was able to lure his victims into doing what he wanted. How this piece of the puzzle found its place in the bigger picture was still being understood, but again this was also total speculation. According to a former partner of Andrew Collier's, who was interviewed by the press, he said Andrew had no interest in sadomasochism, and given his fragile state due to his diagnosis, it was claimed he was likely overpowered rather than being murdered after he was willingly tied up. Journalists for the Observer newspaper began looking into the links between the victims and the places they might have visited. While the police had yet to voice any information about the location where the killer was targeting gay men, the Observer mentioned three pubs which could be potential places where the encounters occurred. The King's Arms in Soho, the London Apprentice in Shoreditch, and the Colherne in Earl's Court. Each of these venues was central to the location where the victims lived and were places they had regularly visited. The police had yet to make the connection to the Colherne. There was another theory that the man that had ended the lives of Peter Walker, Christopher Dunn, Harry Bradley, Andrew Collier and Emmanuel Spiteri had in fact been committing assaults and murders since the end of 1992. Again, this was more speculation but the public were desperate for answers. Peter Tatchell, a member of Outrage, was confident that had the police made the public aware sooner that someone was killing gay men, at least one of the victims might still be alive. 
He said the police were simply not doing enough. The Home Secretary was petitioned to undertake nationwide thorough checks on homophobic attacks so similarities could be quickly identified. Scotland Yard continued to appeal for witnesses to enable investigators to build a timeline of the men's final hours. What they had been doing and who they were with was a conundrum that continued to puzzle officers. Parallels between the victims, such as the withdrawals from their bank accounts after they had died, and visits to the Cole Hearn were still being realised. A Scotland Yard spokesperson said, It is imperative that we find out the victims' last movements from the last reported sightings until when their bodies were found and above all, we would like to know of anyone seen going to their addresses. A pathologist, Dr Ian West, was tasked with carrying out a second set of post-mortems for four of the five victims, so the inquiry might learn more about what had happened. Unfortunately, the body of Christopher Dunn, who was initially believed to have died through a sex game gone wrong, had been cremated. Additionally, a new hotline was set up as the switchboard being used by the investigation was jammed with callers, offering tips and information about the victims. Scotland Yard urged the public to keep calling, even if they struggled to get through. An answer to the speculation and rumour would come, but not for another month. Detectives were informed that Emmanuel Spiteri had last been seen in the Cole Hearn, so with the assistance of the British Transport Police, officers began tracing the slightly built Spiteri's final movements. Through the use of security cameras at Charing Cross Station, they found out that three days before his body was discovered, he was seen during the late evening of June 12th in the company of another man who was considerably larger in build. Detective Chief Superintendent Ken John spoke about the importance of finding this man, as he might have information on the murders. The detective also said they had still not heard from the individual who claimed to have carried out the killings, but he asked the man to re-establish contact. The contact and dialogue that we were developing has now been exposed. It ceased. I am anxious that we take it up again. I'm asking the man that made that cause to contact me again. I also say With the news, the police had identified that Emmanuel Spiteri had used Charing Cross Station on his final journey home and was in the company of another man. A poster appeal to find this mystery individual was undertaken. It featured three images. The first was from enhanced CCTV footage as the original recording was incredibly grainy. The second was an e 
and the third was a drawing of the man's build. The poster issued by the Metropolitan Police read, Police appeal for assistance. Murder. Police investigating a series of murders across London are anxious to trace a man who was seen at Charing Cross Station around 10.30pm on Saturday, June 12. He is described as white, 30 to 40 years, heavy build, 6 feet plus, with full fattish face, short dark hair, dirty discoloured teeth. He wore a short dark jacket and jeans. In large capital letters it continued, Do you know this man? Have you seen him? Can you help? An appeal was also made in the newspapers throughout London. Detectives appeared on television asking for the public's assistance. With background checks well underway, the police then realised that one commonality the victim shared, excluding the circumstances in which they were discovered, was that ATM withdrawals had been made between the last time the victims were seen alive and when their bodies were found. Police spoke about the discovery to the press. A spokesperson for Scotland Yard stated, it is not known if these withdrawals were made by victims or a possible suspect. In each case, the cards used have not been found. These are fairly unusual times to withdraw money, and police are appealing for anyone who has seen the person making these withdrawals. In the case of Peter Walker, he was last seen on March 8th. Three cash withdrawals were made around 7am on March 9th, and his body was found on March 10th. The money totalling £150 was taken on Victoria Street around three and a half miles northeast of his home. Christopher Dunn was last seen on May 28th. The next day, sometime between 6 to 7am, several withdrawals were made from an ATM in Wildstone High Street, a five-minute walk from his home. £200 was taken from Christopher's account. The body of the third victim, Perry Bradley, was found on June 7th. He was last seen three days earlier. On the morning of June 5th, a single withdrawal of £200 was made on West Cromwell Road, around a mile from his home. The accounts for both Emmanuel Spiteri and Andrew Colley are found dead on June 15th and June 9th respectively, still being analysed. It was now the start of July, almost three months since the body of Peter Walker was found in his home in Battersea and police were now closer than ever to finding the person responsible. Police are now trying to trace other passengers photographed at Charing Cross on the night Spiteri died, and they're warning the gay community to remain vigilant to prevent the killer attacking again. Detectives knew that Emmanuel Spiteri was last seen leaving the Colherne on Old Brompton Road. They were still unsure if this was where he had met his mystery companion, 
However, they were spotted together first at the Villiers Street entrance of Charing Cross Station on the evening of June 12th. Then the pair were seen on the concourse together boarding a train on Platform 2, changing at Cannon Street before arriving at Hither Green sometime between 11.30 to 11.45pm, before heading to Emmanuel's flat on foot, a journey which would have taken a few minutes. The police would not specifically label the man a suspect, but they did want to know who he was. A CCTV camera pictured the two men passing a woman who the police were eager to speak with. Wearing dark trousers, a white jacket and carrying a bag on her shoulder, the woman would have seen the men together, three days before Emmanuel Spiteri was found murdered with his body badly burned. The two men were also passed by mother and daughter and two male passengers as the men appeared to plan their journey in front of the timetable monitor. The police asked that these members of the public come forward if they had any information about what they saw. The Metropolitan Police highlighted that Emmanuel and his companion would appear noticeably different, given the disparity in their build and stature. Emmanuel was five feet four inches tall, and the bulky man with him had close cropped hair standing at more than six feet tall. By July 12th, the names of almost three dozen men were mentioned to Scotland Yard, and the officers also made plans to attend the Prince of Wales Theatre performance of City of Angels, a West End musical that Peter Walker had been working on, was being held in memory of the theatre director who was the first victim connected to the serial killer. A memorial service would be held after the show. Detectives hoped that Peter's friends might feel comfortable enough to speak up. But this was difficult due to the frayed relationship gay men had with the police and their treatment in the past. Following Operation Spanner, which was a case that followed from other information that the police had gathered from another murder in Brighton, in fact, um, the, the police about turned on confidentiality and then took a large group of men to court over sadomasochistic masochistic acts. When this murder case came, came up and they were asking for help, many gay men felt they'd been betrayed by the police before and were unprepared to go forward with information. And it wasn't really until we realised how serious this was that people started moving, coming forward to the police. But they're still very reluctant to help the police because they turned it against us before in the past when other information has come up about maybe this Work was being done behind the scenes by the police to repair the damage done although attacks on gay men had not been taken seriously and they felt persecuted. There were also concerns that the police had released details about the victim's medical history. Several of the men were HIV positive. If witnesses came forward looking for their statements to be confidential, would the police release their information regardless? So far, the Metropolitan Police had not received a single tip from anyone who could definitively identify the man they sought.
Unexpectedly, on the morning of Tuesday, July 20th, a man walked into Twitchin and Co., a solicitor's on Western Road in South End on Sea, Essex. He told them he was the person pictured in the CCTV footage. The law firm then contacted the police, who arranged a meeting. The man told officers that he had been with Emmanuel Spiteri before the murder. Emmanuel's companion in his late thirties explained that they went their separate ways after they met a third man at Emmanuel's flat, who wanted the three of them to have sex. While this mystery man hoped that this would be the end of the matter, he was arrested and transported to Islington Police Station in London for questioning, where he was processed and his fingerprints were taken. As the recorder started in the interview room, the man who sat before the officers said that he was not responsible for murdering anyone. Although he had been in the company of Emmanuel Spiteri and went back to Hither Green with him, when he left, Emmanuel was very much alive. After a series of lengthy questions, the police then asked why the man was in Andrew Collier's home. This appeared to be the first question that genuinely rattled the suspect. Trying to regain his composure, he at first declared that he neither knew Andrew nor any of the other victims, aside from Emmanuel Spiteri whom he knew casually. But the suspect was eventually told by the police that they had lifted a fingerprint from the window grill in Andrew's flat, which matched his exactly. The accused man stood with his hands in his pockets for the three-minute hearing. The magistrate, Mr. Roger Davis, warned the press that no articles or drawings should be made depicting the accused identity because they would impede police inquiries. ID parades are to be held. Of no fixed address, the suspect appeared before Horseferry Road magistrates in central London on July 21st, charged with murdering Andrew Collier. Two days later, he was accused of the murder of Emmanuel Spiteri. His car was searched, as were multiple properties where he had previously lived. Almost a month to the day since he had handed himself in to the police, the suspect faced more charges for the murders of Peter Walker between March 8th and March 10th. Christopher Dunn between May 28th and May 30th, and Perry Bradley sometime between June 4th and June 7th. Dressed in a smart shirt and trousers, the suspect was accused of killing five men. He appeared vacant, as he was told he would be held on remand. After several court hearings, on August 19th, Colin Island told a prison officer, I am the gay serial killer. Tell the police. I want to confess. Island spent the next few days describing his crimes.
This is the end of episode 21. To hear more about Colin Island's background and his crimes, please tune in next week. Thank you for listening. A special thanks to our new Patreon producer, Rosie Phillips, and everyone who supports us on Patreon. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Meet 2024's most anticipated robot vacuum, Eufy X10 Pro Omni. With powerful 8,000 PA suction and MopMaster's dual mop pads, it keeps your floor sparkling clean. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards, and Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.